Welcome to our Soul Food Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Yes, we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified that God has raised up Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead do not raise. For if the dead do not raise, then Christ is not risen, and if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then Also, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. You know, we can't prove that Jesus rose from the dead, you know, any more than we can prove the existence of God. Well, God is not going to allow man to prove his existence by man's method. God proves his existence by his own methods. He reveals himself his way, and we either accept his revelation or there is none. We can't prove his existence by scientific method or any means that man can devise. You know, God chose to reveal himself in his creation, as we're told in the first chapter of Romans. You know, it's clearly seen, you know, his creation. He chose to reveal himself in his son, Jesus Christ. You know, and if we don't accept his revelation, if we don't accept what he has given us, then there is no other way to discover God. And likewise, we can't discover the fact of the resurrection by any other means than what he has revealed to us. And that is the history of this fact, this actual event that took place. Uh, G. Campbell Morgan, who's one of my favorite preachers, says, The resurrection is a fact that cannot be proved except to the faith of the heart. The resurrection cannot be proven mechanically, mathematically, or by the demonstration of our small cleverness, it will always evade us. But then he goes on to say, but this is also a fact that cannot be denied except by ignorance. Now I'm not going to elaborate on all the different explanations, if you will, uh, that have come up that man has devised to explain away the resurrection. I mean, things like you know the swoon theory that said that Jesus didn't really die on the cross. He was just mostly dead, if you will, and you know resuscitated and pushed the stone away and and, and came out. You know, or the most common theory, you know, that the disciples stole his body away. That's almost 
equally as ludicrous, but, you know, I'll talk about that one probably a little bit more in a little bit. Or maybe the silliest of all, that the uh, Jewish leaders stole his body away. Yeah, yeah whatever. It's, it's all this silly ideas to explain away the resurrection. Alistair Begg said, it's amazing what you have to believe in order not to believe. You know, and another thing that I'm not going to dwell on this morning, you know, in our text uh, a lot is the differences in the uh, resurrection account in the four Gospels. They all seem to be, you know, somewhat different. And you, it's possible to put together a chronology of the events of that resurrection morning and the days that followed before Jesus' ascension. But, you know, I think the fact that these are all different testify to their authenticity. If they were all exactly the same, what would be the logical conclusion? That these writers got together and colluded on their story to make sure that everything fit? You know, I mean, if... if if it was man's idea, man would write it man's way, and man's way would be that everything is going to fit nicely, you know, into a neat little package, and it's all going to agree. You know, the the early church fathers who put the canon of the Bible together, you know, and, and chose the books that were all in unity uh, to make up the canon, realized what these differences were. You know, and they could have left out anything that didn't, didn't sound right but no God chose what goes in here and he chose things that would testify to the authenticity of his his book you know if if we pick four people out of this congregation to witness an event and to write down what they saw you know every, everybody's going to see things just a little bit different aren't they and you know because of that it, it does add authenticity. Now, you know, so, you know, the Lord made sure that we couldn't deny the facts of the resurrection. And so, as G. Campbell Morgan said, you know, it's only through ignorance, if you will. And, and the, uh, the word uh, that's originated or the origin of the word agnostic actually means ignoramus uh, I thought you know is quite interesting yeah but you know other other than just ignorance I think I'm going to add one one more reason uh, that people don't believe in the, in the resurrection and that is willful rejection nobody has ever had more reason to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ than the chief priests and the leaders of the Sanhedrin at the time of Jesus' resurrection because they knew the facts. They knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that his disciples did not steal his body away. Otherwise, they would not have paid the Roman guard large sums of money to report that that's what happened. But yet, they chose 
by their own willfulness not to believe. Uh, something else that uh, I think adds to the authenticity of, of this account that we're going to study this morning, and that is that there is no mention of the actual events or, or actually what took place at the time of Jesus' resurrection. I think if man had made this up, whoever wrote it couldn't have resisted telling exactly what happened at the time of Jesus' resurrection. But there's really no mention of that. It's just that he was dead when he went into the tomb, and he was alive when he came out. You know, how his resurrection took place, you know, we don't know. But this I do know, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is either the most wonderful, fantastic event that has ever taken place in history, or it's the most cruel hoax that was ever perpetrated on mankind. And I think we in this room today are a testimony to the fact that it is the most wonderful event that has ever taken place. Because how could our lives have been changed as they were otherwise? Let's look at verse 1. Now when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, Salome, and Salome brought spices that they might come and anoint him. And very early in the morning on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen, and they said among themselves, Who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? Um, when Jesus was crucified and he was pronounced dead, there was very little time to get his body down and move to the tomb before the beginning of the Sabbath, because the sundown on, on Friday marked the beginning of the Sabbath, and they could do nothing you know, from that point on. So they had to you know, do the best they could to wrap him in the grave clothes and put him, put him in the tomb, and then wait for the Sabbath to be over, and then go back and, and finish the job. Now they... Uh, obviously, on Saturday after sundown, after six o'clock on on Saturday, which you know is not exactly like our six o'clock because it wouldn't have been sundown necessarily, but you know as soon as the sun set on Saturday, they were free to go buy spices, and they ha they did that on on Saturday night. Sunday morning, first day of the week, they went to the tomb to finish preparing the body. Now, spices, of course, in those days were used not not for mummification. You know, um, embalming hadn't been invented yet in those days. And the Hebrews did not practice mummification like the uh, Egyptians did. The spices were used to keep the smell down of a decaying body and they wanted to prepare him as properly as they possibly could out of their affection for him and so 
as soon as it was daylight, you know, off they went. Now, they had to question among themselves as they went, who's going to roll this stone away from us, for us? You know, this stone is, is big, you know, and we certainly can't, even though there were three of them. Now, you know, this, this tells, tells us something that they were not expecting to see Jesus alive and well when they got to the tomb. They were expecting to find a dead body. Now, and not only these women were expecting to find the dead body, the disciples themselves were not expecting a resurrection. I mean, they had seen him crucified. They had seen him beaten. They saw him dead. They saw him put in the tomb. This man that they had placed all their hope and trust in, they, they had believed that he was the Messiah. They had believed that he had come to restore Israel to its proper, her proper place in the world. And even though he told them you know, repeatedly you know, that the Son of Man must be betrayed into the hands of cruel men, he, you know, he must be killed, but he's going to come back again. I'm going to come back again. They, it still didn't register. They, they never expected this to happen. As far as they were concerned, everything that they had put their hope and trust in had had been taken away from them. Things had gone dreadfully and horribly wrong. And you know, Matthew uh, in his account reminds us that there was a Roman guard stationed outside of the tomb. Now, you know, the women couldn't roll it away. The disciples weren't even there to roll it away. And nobody else was interested in rolling it away. So, yeah, when they got there, it was rolled away. Now, that uh, raises a question, doesn't it? <laughs> How did it get rolled away? Now, um, you know, when, but uh, verse 4, when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away. For it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. <clears throat> this is not what they were expecting. They came prepared to anoint a body, but there was nobody there to be anointed. And, you know, the angel didn't just say, you know, he's risen, go on about your business, you know, or go back and tell the disciples, you know, I mean, he told them to do that, but he, that in all he told them, he says, come in, look and see, see the place where he was laid. You know, 
Hearing is one thing, but seeing is something else, isn't it? It's sometimes difficult to believe everything you hear, but it's hard not to believe you know, what you see. So he told him, come in, look. Now, you know, he's gone. And then go back and tell his disciples. You know, it's it's very interesting, I, I think, and and quite profound that it was the women who first came to the tomb, who were the first that were supposed to bear witness of his resurrection, because in those days the testimony of a woman was not to be accepted. They couldn't even testify in a court of law because women were thought to be totally un untrustworthy. But, you know, the Lord chose women to be the first to bear witness. In fact, uh, I was going to mention this later, but I'll mention it now. You know, the disciples didn't even bother to go to the tomb. In fact, it wasn't until Mary Magdalene told them, you know, hey, this tomb's empty, you know, that Peter and John got up and went to check it out to see. They didn't even bother to go and look until the women came to see. So, you know, the fact of Jesus' resurrection is a matter of history. But, you know, it can only be understood by what the Bible tells us about it. You know, the resurrection means that everything that Jesus said and taught and did was completely validated. Romans 1.4 says that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. His resurrection validated his earthly ministry. The resurrection means that we have assurance of our own resurrection. As Paul writes in, in 1 Thessalonians, that for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who are asleep in Jesus. Because he lives, we also can live. The resurrection means that God has an eternal plan for these bodies of ours. You know, the Gnostics said that the body was, was evil. Yeah. The body needs to be done away with. But God made these bodies. You know, we, we sinned. We caused them to fall. We caused them to have to undergo the corruption that they do and suffer the pain that we do. But God wants us in our bodies, back the way that they should be. So Jesus' resurrection in a body, he died in a body like ours. He was raised in a body that is glorified the way that our bodies should be. And that tells us that, you know, we are going to, to see God in these bodies when we are resurrected 
Job said, even hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus came and ministered, he said, you know, even though the skin worms destroy my flesh, in my body I will see God. And the resurrection means that Jesus has a continuing ministry for his people, for his church. You know, he didn't give up everything when he ascended into heaven. Said, you know, Hebrews it says that he is ever making intercession for us. He is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him and make intercession for us. You know, the resurrection proves that though it though Jesus died on the cross bearing our sins he paid the penalty for us he paid our price let me just think of a gospel song <clears throat> you know um, you can get all kinds of bad theology in gospel songs I hate to tell you this but but you can you know that says he uh, he we owed a price that we could not pay. He he paid. Uh, we owed a debt we could not pay. He paid a debt he did not owe. Well, he didn't know it. We owe the debt, and we can pay it. It's not a debt that we cannot pay. It's a debt that we will pay if we don't accept his payment for us. The wages of sin is death. You know, our our debt. For our sin is our death, and we will pay it if we if we don't trust in Him. But He paid it for us. He paid that debt, even though we owed it. He paid it, and paid it in full. You know, when He said on the cross, "It is finished," you know, I mean, the debt was totally paid. So if Jesus hadn't risen from the dead, our debt was still paid. But the fact that he did rise from the dead is, is, is kind of like the, the confirmation of it that proves to us that our debt is paid. That proves to us that what he did was good enough in God's sight to take care of our debt and to seal us in him forever and for eternity yeah. so I say that to kind of watch the, the theology and gospel songs if you if you will so not that they're all bad most of them are good but every once in a while you know something like that uh, sneaks in verse 7 <clears throat> But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him, as he said to you. So they went out quickly and fled from the tomb, for they trembled and were amazed. You know, I think this is a, a, a very interesting verse right here. Go tell his disciples. You know, we talked about that just a minute ago. You know, they are the first witnesses. But why did he add in? And Peter. Well, you know, some people have 
conjectured that Peter would, had separated himself from the others. Uh, and so, you know, he'd have to go, he had to go to him separate. But, you know, that couldn't be the case because when Mary Magdalene went and, and told Peter, John was with them, with him. He didn't go say go tell Peter and John, but go tell Peter. You know, a lot of Bible scholars think that the book of Mark, though it was penned by Mark, was actually written by Peter. That Peter dictated this book to to Mark. Mark did the actual writing. Now, you know, most likely, I don't know this for a fact, but most likely of all the writers in the New Testament, the only ones that were literate were Luke. He was a doctor, so hopefully he could read and write. And Matthew, he was a tax collector. You know, he would have had to have some some education. And Mark, because Mark came from a, a well-to-do family and very likely, you know, was, was educated. But it's quite possible that Peter, John, you know, all these fishermen guys and, you know, the other people, you know, had never learned to read and write. And so they had other people write for them. You know, this wasn't uncommon at all in those days. Even Paul, who was educated and could write, had somebody else write most of his letters for him because he couldn't see too good. You know, um, you know he mentions this a couple times, you know, that he, he adds in something. He said, I've written this in my own hand. You know, see what big letters I'm writing here. But, you know, very likely Peter actually dictated this book to, to Mark and uh, yeah, maybe he wanted just to throw his name in there, just to show, you know, that the Lord had had forgiven him, because of all the disciples, you know, all who who abandoned him, Peter probably felt he had abandoned him the most, because he had denied him three times the others just left Peter actually denied him and that he wanted to to show that that the Lord had forgiven him and had accepted him back now Spurgeon said something along these lines that if any of you have behaved worse to your master than others, you are particularly called to come to him now. You have grieved him, and you are grieving because you have grieved him. You have been brought to repentance after sliding away from him, and now he seals your pardon by inviting him, by inviting you back to himself. When we have failed the Lord, you know, and we all have and we all will, you know, we always feel him pulling us back. That's how we know that we're his. 
And these women trembled and were uh, were uh, uh, afraid. They were uh, and they were amazed. You know, the words used here for you know trembled and amazed doesn't mean that they were just a little bit concerned. I mean, they were scared to death. The word uh, trembled means to be not just seized with astonishment. It's the same word that could be translated ecstasy. I mean, they they were just. It, it's hard to describe how they would how they would feel. I mean, how would you feel? You know, if you went to the cemetery to visit the grave of a loved one and found the grave open. I mean, we don't have tombs like, like they did then, you know, here. But, you know, imagine going to the cemetery the day after, a couple of days after your loved one has been buried, and all of a sudden you look and, you know, the ground's been moved away, and you look down in there and the, the vault and the casket are open and it's empty. I mean, what would you think? Well, I would think like Mary Magdalene did. Somebody came and got him. (laughs) But, you know, but then when you see an angel there who tells you, you know, he's risen. Yeah, look and see. They were so scared that for a while they didn't even go tell anyone. They just, I think, were just afraid to say anything. Verse 9. Before we get into verse 9, I want to to mention something. Uh, And the only reason that I'm bringing this up is that a lot of your Bibles will have a footnote at the beginning of verse 9 that says, verses 9 through 20 are not found in the most ancient Greek texts. And... You know, so you'll kind of know what's going on, uh, you know, and have an explanation for that. That's the only reason that I'm mentioning it. You know, I believe that verses 9 through 20 are just as inspired as the rest of the book. But it is a fact that the two oldest manuscripts that, that we have, that, you know, that we have now anyway, you know, the Codex Sinaiticus Sin. I can't even say the word. And the Codex Vaticanus, you know, don't have verses 9 through 20 in them. So, you know, that raises the question, did did Mark end his book or did somebody else? We don't know. But we do know that as early as the beginning of the first century, you know, shortly after the year 100, or the beginning of the second century, I'm sorry, um, Christian writers, Christian apologists of that time, refer to various passages between verses 9 and um, 20. Now, it is quite possible that Mark actually stopped with verse verse 8. 
it doesn't sound too logical to us to, to end the book that calls itself a gospel with these women leaving the tomb and being afraid. I mean, that just totally seems to stop right in midair someplace and leave everything hanging. Now, there are some scholars who, who make a very good case for Mark doing just that. Now, I'm not going to go into all that because he's just all too academic for this morning. But, you know, if you're interested, you can see me afterwards. But, uh, you know, whether he wrote it or the Lord had somebody else write it and finish it for him is all beside the point. The point is, verses 9 through 20 are... The word of God. But whether they were were in the original or not, whether we had them or not, makes no difference whatsoever in any Orthodox Christian doctrine that we know. You know, it doesn't take anything away from the others. It doesn't add anything to the others. All it does is substantiate the others and give one more testimony to. Uh, what the other three gospel accounts say. All right, and with that, we'll go on to verse 9. Now, when he arose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. And when they had heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe. You know, if they had been expecting a resurrection, they wouldn't have been mourning and weeping, would they? They would have been off rejoicing someplace, just in, in eager anticipation of, of this happening. Yeah, but even though they had been told, it, uh, you know, they just didn't even consider this to be feasible. Now, um, he first appeared to Mary Magdalene. We can find this account in, in the Gospel of John um, with her first seeing Jesus and her thinking that he was a gardener. And Jesus sent her to tell the other disciples. And as I said just a while ago, you know, in her day, her testimony wouldn't be reliable Yet Jesus trusted her to be the first to carry the message. Verse 12, And after that he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. And they went and told the rest, but they did not believe them either. Now these, of course, we know the two disciples that were on the road to uh, Emmaus, which we find in the account in Luke. And... <clears throat> After you know their meeting with him and him revealing himself to them, you know they went and told the others. They still didn't believe. We cannot say, and a lot of people use this excuse for the resurrection too. They'll say, well, they they were predisposed to believe. You know, they they were conditioned to believe. No, they didn't believe. They just, I mean, there is no way that you can construe the gospel record to say that these people were predisposed to believe. They were predisposed not to believe. And they weren't going to be easily convinced. I mean, consider Thomas. 
You know, he heard the testimony of everybody else you know, who, who had been eyewitnesses and said, I'm not going to believe unless I see him, unless I put my hand into his side and into you know, the nail prints in his hand. I, I'm not going to believe. They didn't believe the women. They didn't believe the men. Somebody said they were equal opportunity unbelievers. And I think that is for sure. Verse 14. Later he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table, and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. You know, they could have done better. <laughs> they could have believed, but they didn't. But whether they believed or not, you know, he is laying a responsibility on them, just as he is laying a responsibility on us. You know, this is the great commission that he gave his church. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Now, this is a command not a suggestion. We are to be his witnesses. We have a commission. We have something that we have to do for him. <clears throat> you know, and unfortunately, you know, his command wasn't obeyed immediately, was it? They didn't go into all the world and and preach the gospel until the church had to be persecuted to, to disperse them. But our commission still stands. He, he doesn't say, you know, go to those who will receive you. He said, go into the world and preach it to every creature. We'll quote Spurgeon again. Uh, Spurgeon's probably the most quotable preacher that there you know, has ever been. And he said, uh, An army chaplain once said to the Duke of Wellington, Do you think it's a good you think it's of any use us taking the gospel to the hill tribes in India? Will they ever receive it? And the Duke replied, What are your marching orders? That was the only answer he gave. The stern disciplinarian that the soldier was, he only wanted marching orders, and he obeyed. And he meant that every soldier of the cross must obey the marching orders of Christ, his great commander. And our marching orders are to take the gospel into all the world. It says, He who believes and is baptized will be saved but he who does not believe will be condemned. Now, this is a promise of salvation to those who believe. It is not saying, as some misconstrue it, to say that baptism saves us. He says, he who believes will be saved and I believe he is saying that he who believes will be baptized because of the belief because 
In believing, we want to obey. In believing, we want to follow the command of our Lord. So, you know, I think even though baptism doesn't save us, I think it's terribly wrong to consider baptism a a non-essential. If we have accepted the Lord as our Savior, we should follow Him in His example and follow Him in His command to to be baptized. It is essential obedience. And it would be really wrong to try to walk, the Christian walk, follow the Lord and and do so in disobedience. So I would encourage you, if you have not been baptized since you accepted the Lord, talk to Pastor Bill before next week. So... All right, verse 19. So then, after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out preaching everywhere, and the Lord working with them, confirming the word through accompanying signs. Amen. He was... uh, Received into heaven and set down at the right hand of, of the Father. You know, setting down indicates, you know, the job's done, doesn't it? He had completed the task of our salvation. And, you know, as he, as he went into heaven, you know, he is going to take us. But even though he sat down, you know, he's still working. You know, as I mentioned a while ago, he's making intercession for us. He's doing something else. He's preparing a place for us. You know, so that where he is, you know, we can be too. Um, and you know, it, it says that he he confirmed, you know. Uh, the word, you know, through accompanying signs, you know, the signs that he gives here in in uh, the book of Luke, I mean, book of Mark, you know, drinking deadly things, picking up serpents. Uh, you know, people have, um, you know, misused these things to, you know, handle snakes and and drink stuff that you know they shouldn't and I had a cleaning lady one time who worked in my office who had drank acid two different times and had her vocal cords just totally burned out because she she went to a, a snake handling church if you will you know this was in Wyoming County um, That's not what what he's talking about, you know. We don't go tempting the Lord by doing deadly things, you know, picking up snakes and and and, and drinking strychnine or, or drinking acid and you know whatever else. But he does confirm his word through signs and miracles. 
And you know, there is no greater miracle that accompanies the preaching of God's word than the changed lives of those who accept him. If if the lives of our converts are, are not changed, you know, then they have not accepted. Where there is acceptance, there will be change. We are in Christ, new creation, a new creation. Everything's made new, you know. That is the greatest miracle of all and the greatest testimony of all. And even though, you know, this this book ends, you know, with his disciples going out and preaching the gospel. It is still going on today, isn't it? Even right here in Calvary Chapel in Princeton, West Virginia. And it will continue until he comes. And I pray that when he does, that we will all be ready. We have no closing music today, so we'll close with a prayer. <clears throat>